All right, everybody, come on, take your seats, let's go. I got 25 pages to get through, so let's go. Yeah, yeah, there's an intermission. <laughs> Good morning, church. My name is Nathan. I lead the men's ministry here at AC Squared, and as you saw, in the, uh, in the uh, messages there, we're going to have a men's breakfast this Saturday. Uh, just so you know, we eat better than the women. Fact. So, uh, how would we know? I've, a, a mouse told me. Yeah, yeah, yep. Spies, that's right. Uh, so anyways... If you really, like Matt was talking about, if you want to get connected, come on out to uh, the men's breakfast. Uh, we have fun, we fellowship, we dig into the word, uh, it's a good time. Now, before I start, I'd just like to say thanks to Pastor Matt and the church leadership team for this opportunity to preach to you today. This is a big responsibility and it's not one I take lightly. Today's message is going to be very challenging. My hope is that you don't tune me out because what I'm about to say is going to trigger many of you. It's going to challenge your presuppositions and many of the traditions you've been brought up with. For some of you, it may leave you with more questions than answers, but that's not a bad place to be. This message isn't meant to confuse you. It's meant to push you into the holy text of Scripture and deal with what it says rather than how it makes you feel. Too much of the church today is led by a creaturely humanistic approach to the text of Scripture. Here at AC Squared, we strive to be a text-driven people. So if you don't agree with something I've said, dig into the text and challenge it. <clears throat> My hope for you by the end of this message is that you will see the scriptures from a different view, from one behind the veil that was torn, one that gives God the glory for who he is and how he saves us. Lastly, before we begin, please feel free to shout me down, amen, hallelujah, anything similar. However, however I would ask you to keep your questions, um, write down your questions and keep your objections to yourself until after the sermon. Today's message is not meant to be a debate. Before I begin, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today with a humble heart, and we ask you, Father, to help us set aside our traditions, help us to set aside our emotions, and help us to see the Scripture the way you intended us to see them, in a way that gives you glory Father, as your word says, help me to decrease as you increase, and allow your spirit to lead me as I present this message. I truly believe the spirit has laid this message on my heart, so let it, please, let it be a pleasing aroma to your ears. Lord, help the people in the church today that need to hear this message. Help those who may be confused, those who may be in despair, 
Father, I pray as your seed goes out, your spirit would go out and touch the hearts of those who may be far off from you today and to those who are enslaved to sin and who may come to know the truth, the truth that truly sets you free. I pray this message reaches everyone it's intended for. You know who they are because you accomplish salvation in the hearts of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned the term presupposition. To some of you, this may be a new term. For those who know it or think they know it, this will be a good refresher. The term means, as a noun, a thing tacitly assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument or course of action. Seems pretty clear, right? Maybe not. Here's another definition um, that might be easier to stand, understand. A presupposition is something that you assume to be true, especially something which you must assume is true in order to continue with what you are saying or thinking. Now let me pause here for just a second and make a clarification. I'm not specifically talking about presuppositional apologetics. Although some of the concepts may apply, today's message is not about apologetics. Because to be fair, there are multiple approaches, and most of Christian academia would agree there are four main approaches to apologetics, and presuppositional apologetics is only one of them. And while I would consider myself a presuppositional apologist, I think I'm probably a soft presup guy, because I think other approaches to apologetics are similarly good. However, for today's message, I want you to keep in the idea of presuppositions in light of the definition I mentioned and what I'm about to say to you next. I think it's only fair to say that whether a person consciously or unconsciously realizes it, everyone reads the Bible with their own set of presuppositions. Thus, these presuppositions shape one's overall understanding of the Bible. And to take it a step further, I would even say that many of our traditions also shape our understanding of the Bible. And thus far, further develop our presuppositions. Many of these traditions are developed more by our humanistic culture rather than by the very text of Scripture. Church, hear me. Including myself, we need to stop letting culture interpret the Bible And instead, allow the Bible to speak for itself and submit to the Word of God rather than to what the world says. Again, church, hear me. I am included with you in that I have my own presuppositions and traditions, and this message is as much for me as it is for you. Today, I want to challenge you to reconsider how you came to salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, Daniel's not here, which is unfortunate because he can't defend himself. I wish he was here. A few weeks ago, Daniel gave a message about how he believes the text of Scripture supports the concept of free will. That's a trigger word. Watch out. This is a prime example of one of Daniel's presuppositions as he sees fallen man 
in an uninhibited free, with an uninhibited free will able to make decisions for or against at all times. And Daniel doesn't stand alone in this presupposition. In fact, by large, much of the evangelic church today, to include most non-Christians, view man's free will in the same way. Today, it's my intention to challenge you to reconsider this presupposition in light of how sin has changed fallen mankind's nature and his or her desires. Now, before I get ahead of myself, let's talk a little bit more about this concept of free will. Definitions are important because they define terms. And once we define the term, everyone is aware of what the term means, as opposed to what they think it means. First, I think we would all agree that we don't have a free will that allows us to do whatever we want. None of us has a free will that is so free that we get to choose when we are born, or for that matter, where we are born. We don't get to choose the color of our skin. We don't get to choose the family we're born into. And as much as some of us would like to, we can't will ourselves to fly or any other similar absurdity. As, much, as such, most people both in and out of the church today would say that they have a libertarian free will, which is basically defined as metaphysically and morally, man is an autonomous being who operates independently, not controlled by others, or by outside forces. Here's another definition of free will that you might find more appealing. The power of acting without constraint of necessity or fate. The ability to act at one's own discretion. Another term worth defining is the word autonomous. It's key in understanding libertarian free will. To be autonomous means self-governing or having the freedom to act independently. To put it plainly, if you have a libertarian free will, then you can make a a choice for something, and because of your free will, you could have chosen otherwise. Allow me to be blunt for just a second. Biblically, this means that because of your free will, you can choose to either accept or deny the gift of salvation. Please don't twist my words and try to say it's just believing. If there isn't a choice in the matter, then you wouldn't have free will. Am I right? That's rhetorical. Don't answer that. (laughs) Additionally, it's not my intention to make this a work. I'm not trying to say that if you believe, then you're doing something. We're talking about choices, and if they are, in fact, choices, then you have a libertarian free will, and if that's the case, it must be free. The way I see it, there are two distinct problems with this idea of free will, one theologically and the other being rational. Allow me to elaborate. If by free will, 
you mean that your decisions, let me go back to the slide, are not hindered by any other person or outside force, any prejudice, any prior disposition, or any options, then really your choice is purely spontaneous and it means nothing. Allow me to illustrate. Take a look at this image. Imagine you're standing in the middle of a bridge over a crevasse that is so high you can't see the bottom. You look to the right of the bridge and it goes as far as you can see and fades away. You look to the left and it's the same way. You think to yourself, what should I do? You, stand, you could stand there and do nothing. You could jump over the bridge. Or you could go to the right or to the left. However, you don't know where you're going. As you stand there puzzled as to which way you should go, you hear something under the bridge. You look and see a troll. I really wanted to find a picture of the troll from Willow <laughs> and put one of those up there, but I couldn't find a good picture. <laughs> anyway, you see this troll, and you ask the troll which way you should go, and the troll replies, it depends, to which you respond, on what? The troll responds, it depends on where you want to go. You respond, I don't know where I want to go. As such, the troll responds, then it doesn't matter which way you choose. I use this illustration to show that our choices are, in fact, influenced by outside factors, and in some cases, other people. If they are not, then the choice you make, the choices you make are completely arbitrary and have no meaning at all. So here's the problem with this way of thinking. First, the theological problem. If your choices are spontaneous, i.e. not influenced by anything else, then logically we can say there is no reason for the choice. Another way to put this would be there's no motivation for the choice. It just happens spontaneously. If we believe free will in this way, how could any choice have any moral significance to it? I believe the Bible makes it clear that our choices have consequences and we are responsible for them. There should be a reason as to why we make these choices. Another problem with this type of free will is that in reality, the will is completely neutral. It's not bent to the right or to the left. Or from a biblical point of view, it's not bent toward evil or toward righteousness. It's just neutral. The second problem with this, uh, the second problem is a rational problem. If we go back to the illustration and you're standing on the bridge and there's no reason to go to the right or to the left or to jump off or stand still, if there's no motivation or consequence for the choice you make, then you would have no reason to choose any of them. As such, the choice would be a result without a cause. Or to put it another way, it would be an effect without a cause. As such, a spontaneous choice is a rational impossibility. 
It would be a reaction without an action. From a biblical point of view, fallen man is not seen in a state of neutrality with respect to the things of God. He does have a prejudice. He does have a bias. And he does have an inclination towards wickedness. His very sin separates him from God. Now let's look at this from another perspective. American scholar Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Freedom of the Will, defines free will... Whoops, sorry. ...as the mind choosing, meaning that although he distinguishes between the mind and the will, the two are inseparably, inseparably related. We do not make moral choices without the mind approving the direction of our choice. The idea is biblically related to the concept of your conscience. In that, the mind is aware and involved in moral choices. As we become aware of certain options, we may prefer one over the other. Before we make the choice, we must, this must take place for the choice to be a moral decision. As such, the will is not something that acts independently of the mind, but rather in conjunction with the mind. Whether the mind deem, or whatever the mind deems as being desirable is what the will is inclined to choose. Edwards further clarifies that moral free agents always choose according to the strongest desire they have at the moment of choice. To put it plainly, we always choose according to our strongest desire. Let's put this in biblical terms that we can all understand. Anytime you choose or I choose to sin, the choice To sin indicates that our desire to sin is greater than our desire to obey Christ. Likewise, if your desire to obey Christ is greater than your desire to sin, you wouldn't sin. At the moment of choice in any situation, we always choose our strongest desire. I imagine some of you are thinking, what about those times when we make choices for no reason? For example, if I were to ask you why you chose the outfit you wore to church today, could you analyze your choice and tell me why you chose to possibly wear all black? Or maybe you're the type of person who likes to dress up. Or maybe you just chose the clothes that were on the top of your drawer. Or maybe these were the only clean clothes you had. Sometimes we make quick decisions, but we still make those decisions based on the options that are available to us. If you're the person who wore all black and yet you had the choice to choose to wear blue, you're wearing all black because your strongest desire was to wear black. If it were to wear blue, you would have came to church wearing blue. Now, to be fair... One common objection to Edwards' idea of choosing towards our strongest desire is the idea that we commonly do things we don't want to do. 
And in some situations, we may even feel like we've been coerced. To put it plainly, coercion simply means that our choices are limited. And in some cases, they may be limited to only two choices. Nevertheless, in these situations, we still choose according to our strongest desires. Let me give you two quick illustrations. First, let's say my family and I are having dinner tonight and we're having asparagus because Katrina and I like asparagus. However, let me tell you, Jackson despises asparagus, like passionately. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we're having asparagus. Well, let me tell, uh, I tell Jackson, sorry, hold on a second here. Okay, so if I tell Jackson he can either eat asparagus or go to bed early, he is presented with two choices. Jackson has a choice to make. He can either eat the asparagus or go to bed early. Now, if he wants to stay up, he might choose to eat the asparagus because his desire is greater to stay up than to choke down some asparagus. But if he chooses to go to bed early, then his desire is to not choke down the asparagus and go to bed early. Now, in this situation, he isn't presented with another choice. This is a form of parental coercion. Any parents in the room ever do this? Nope, never. Never, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can have these Brussels sprouts, or you can have this piece of wood. <laughs> it's your choice. <laughs> this is like positive parenting 101 right there. All right, so this is a form of parental coercion. In either case, Jackson's strongest desire will lead to the choice he makes. Here's another quick example. Say a person is in a life-threatening situation, and the choice of fight or flight is still based on our strongest desire. As such, it is my opinion that this isn't a good objection because even when we don't want to do something, we still choose according to our strongest desire. All right, everyone, take a deep breath. I realize that was a lot to take in, so let me summarize it in this slide. Libertarian free will versus moral free agents. If you're on the side of libertarian free will, you can make a choice for something, and because of your free will, you could have chosen otherwise. You're not controlled by others or by outside forces. If you're of the mindset of a free moral agent, you always choose according to your strongest desire at the moment of choice. The will and the mind are inseparable because they work in conjunction. Now, some of you might be thinking I'm misrepresenting your concept of free will, or maybe you disagree with my definitions, but this idea of libertarian free will is what most people believe the text of Scripture proves. Just as we heard from Daniel weeks ago, it's our choice, it's our choices that must be free. And to be fair, this idea of choosing according to your strongest desire is commonly referred to as compatibilism. Compatibilism is 
is an attempt to reconcile the theological position that every event is causally determined, ordained, and or decreed by God with the free will of man. And please note that divine determinism is not to be confused with fatalism. And some of you may disagree, and that's okay, because you have the free will to disagree. (laughs) Although the will of man is free to do as it wishes, it wishes according, excuse me, it wishes to act according to its nature. And since the nature is of the fallen will is sinful from birth, we are slaves to sin. So here you see my presupposition, that being man in his fallen nature, most commonly referred to as original sin, as a result of Adam's sin, not that Adam's sin is the original sin, <clears throat> we no longer possess the capacity or the ability to freely choose against our nature. It is my opinion that the humanistic approach to free will has clouded our judgment to see man's sovereignty equal with that of God's sovereignty. The two are not mutually exclusive. In light of these two concepts, as it concerns man's will to choose, I will now turn my focus to the Bible to show how fallen man's abilities are described in the text of Scripture. There will be a lot of Scripture today because we believe sola scriptura, which is Latin for by Scripture alone, because all things must be tested against the Bible. We as Christians believe the Bible is the standard by which all things are measured and or judged. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Or you can look at the slides. (laughs) So read your Bibles. (laughs) Or read your phone. But I'm going to read it to you. All right, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's my Satan voice. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, that, <clears throat> and thought it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate." Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord 
among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? I think God has a loud voice. That's why I did it like that. (laughs) And he said, uh, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? He he, he speaks Softer to women, I think. Just kidding, just kidding. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here we see the fall of man. We see how his nature was changed from what I believe was truly a libertarian free will to one that is now corrupted by sin. In my estimation, Adam and Eve had to have had to have a truly free libertarian free will so that the fall could occur. However, in verse 7, we see the instantaneous change. Immediately following, we see Adam and Eve hiding from God. We see Adam and Eve casting blame. Adam not only blames God for the woman he gave her, but he blames Eve for the, giving him the fruit. And then we see Eve blaming the serpent for deceiving her. In their new sinful, corrupt nature, we don't see Adam seeking for God. In fact, we see the opposite. He runs from God. As God exposes their sins, we don't see Adam and Eve asking for forgiveness and humility, rather the opposite. We don't see either of them repenting. Instead, we see them resisting and blaming. Another point to keep in mind here is we don't see them immediately die, but we do see that their nature has been changed. Like Adam and Eve, in our fallen and sinful nature, we make the same choices because we are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. In fact, the Apostle Paul appoints Adam as the representative for the human race. In Romans 5.12, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Later in 18 and 19, Paul identifies the one trespass that led to condemnation for all men, and by the one man's disobedience, all or the many were made sinners. Now, before we move on, let's talk, let's talk about deadness and what the Bible describes as dead in sins and trespasses. I'm not saying that man in his fallen nature is so dead like that of a corpse, that he can't make choices, that he can't walk, that he can't, in some cases, do that which is good. at least in his eyes. On the contrary, the nature of deadness is that of the spiritual abilities of man. 
Let's quickly turn, uh, let's quickly talk about man's heart. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And if you want to look ahead, we're going to be going to Genesis 8, 21b and Jeremiah 17, 19. But they're on the slides. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wickedness, every intention, only evil continually. Look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 21b, meaning the second half of the verse. <clears throat> I will never again curse the ground because of man, for his intentions, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why is that? Because man is conceived in sin. This isn't in the slides, but if you want to look at it, I'm looking at Psalms 51.5. Reading from the Amplified Bible, it says, I was brought forth in a state of wickedness. In sin, my mother conceived me, and from the beginning, I too was sinful. Lastly, look at Jeremiah 17.9, reading from the NLT. The human heart is the most deceitful thing and desperately, most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now let's talk about man's mind in relation to his fallen nature. Turn with me to Romans 8. Good old Romans 8. Starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's ability, folks. It cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, we're talking about ability. If man in his state in his fallen state, could choose to believe in God, I think that would be pleasing to God, immensely pleasing to God. In fact, Jesus tells us in Luke 15, 7, also not in the slides, sorry, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That sounds pleasing to God. This is why Paul, in his epistle to the Corinthians, further clarifies man's fallen nature in relationship to his abilities. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, and I'm reading from the Amplified. 
<clears throat> but the natural, unbelieving man does not accept the things, the teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, absurd and illogical to him. He is incapable, ability, to understand them because they are spiritually discerned and appreciated. He is unqualified to judge spiritual matters. Let's do a little recap before I move on. So far, we've identified the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. Additionally, the nature of man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because he is spiritually dead, unable to discern. For those of you who are still clinging to your free will and the ability to please God, which only spiritually born-again believers are able to do, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pretty heavy. Dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of the world, the culture of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. I didn't add this in, but it's pretty convicting. Jesus says that you are of your father, the devil, <clears throat> the spirit that now works in sons of disobedience. We are the sons of disobedience. We are the sons of Adam who disobeyed. living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that's the flesh, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Still not convinced? Still not ready to let go of that presupposition that assumes you must have a libertarian free will to make any choice, even if it goes against your sinful nature? Still not convinced that in your fallen nature, you are children of wrath? Maybe you believe in some way you are able to free yourself from the slavery of sin. Luther put it like this, we are in bondage to sin. Besides Luther, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul would say otherwise. Look at John 8, 34 and Romans 6, 20. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When you were a slave to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had no desire to come or to conform to God's will. This is heavy stuff, guys. 
It's really heavy. I can tell by the the spirit in the room. It's, it's heavy stuff. Turn with me to Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, back then, that was everybody. You're either Jew or you're Greek. Are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's commonly referred to sons of the devil. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, when Paul quotes this, he quotes this out of the Old Testament, making this a universal application. My attempt thus far has been to show you that fallen man does not possess the libertarian free will like so many Christians believe today. I think we have the ability to make choices, or, or excuse me, to think that we have the ability to make choices that go against our nature, in my estimation, is unbiblical. I believe the Bible makes it clear that we are unable to come to Christ unless it has been granted to us by God. Turn with me to John 6. We're looking at verses 44 and 65 as we examine what Jesus declares as it concerns to man's ability or lack of ability. <clears throat> you could hear a pin drop in here right now. <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, giving him the desire to come to me. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. Verse 65. And he was saying, this is the reason why I told you no one can come to me unless it has been granted him, that is, unless he is enabled to do so by the Father. That's from the Amplified. Now look at these two passages. It clearly says, no one. Really meaning everyone. Because here, no one is a universal negative. So this includes everyone. Then it says, can. The word can implies ability. So these passages are saying, no one has the ability to do something. 
So what is it that no one has the ability to do? Jesus says, come to me. So you have to ask yourself, does man in and of himself, according to Jesus, have the ability to come to Jesus? Church, the answer is no. So man in and of himself can't come to Jesus. Unless. Okay? We see the term unless. The term unless implies an exception. Also known as a necessary condition. So Jesus is saying there is a necessary condition that must be met prior to anyone coming to him. The two necessary conditions are as follows. In 65, it says, It has been granted him by the Father. And in 64, the Father who draws him. Now, there's much debate over these two verses but I think it's fair to say without contradicting ourselves that Jesus taught no man can come to him without the necessary condition that God the Father draws him. Now I know some of you may be thinking, what does the word draw mean here in verse 44? Many on the side of libertarian free will believe it means that God entices, he woos, he attracts men to him. They do not affirm that it means God draws irresistibly. Rather, this type of drawing is usually tied to some type of provenient grace. Those who respond are saved and those who do not respond are lost. Those on the side of moral free agents or compatibilism believe the drawing is more than just enticing. For a better understanding of how the word draw is used in other texts in the New Testament, turn with me to, we're going to go to James 2.6 and then Acts 16.19. Again, they're on the slides. James 2, 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Acts 16, 19. But when the owners saw that their hope, excuse me, but when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. In both of these passages, the bolded word drag and drag are the same Greek words used as draw in John 6.44. I'll allow you to be the judge but to me, it sounds like a compelling force was implied rather than simply enticing. 
But if you're still confused as to whether you are in the flesh or in the spirit, look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, sorry. Nicodemus. That's his cousin, Nicodemus. In in John chapter 3. Yay, somebody laughed. Sorry, just kidding. John chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Jesus answered him, talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? (laughs) Jesus answered, Truly, truly, unless... One is born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What does this unless imply? There's a necessary condition. You see, Jesus makes it clear that from our mother's womb... We are born in the flesh, born with a sin nature. And in order to be born in the spirit, we have to be born again. Here again, we see the word unless, which we already know implies a necessary condition. The necessary condition is being born again. Additionally, we see the word cannot, which implies ability. So Jesus is saying that unless one is born again, he does not have the ability to see the kingdom of God. Here the term born again is synonymous with the term regeneration. Triggered. Sorry. (laughs) So one could say regeneration precedes seeing the kingdom of God. Next, we see in the conversation, Nicodemus completely confused. And Jesus further clarifies the necessary condition by stating, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So not only does regeneration precede seeing the kingdom, but it also precedes entering the kingdom. Now, as I wrap up today's message, let's look at what this implies. We have those believing in a libertarian free will, choosing or believing in Christ before they are regenerated. These same people, in their fallen sinful nature, cooperate by means of provenient grace Responding to the wooing, enticing, and attraction of the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit is in them, having regenerated them. The bottom line is, these same people people who are not yet born again are seeing and choosing Jesus, the King of the kingdom of God. Strange. To me, that's... 
like putting the cart before the horse. This is why the Calvinist, I waited to say that till the end. <laughs> I waited to say that till the end. The Calvinists insist that regeneration precedes faith, meaning that the necessary condition of faith is regeneration. Now in closing, turn with me back to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, going through 9. But God! You got to love that. But God. That is powerful. But God. Being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, regenerated, us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's powerful no matter what side you're on. Quickly, I want to address this idea of love. Because for a long time, I struggled with this. Far too many people believe you must have a free will in order to love God. I think that's a lie. I think that we're deceived in that. I think in our fallen state, if we were able to love God, that would certainly be something that pleases God. I don't believe fallen man would ever love God. Rather, he hates God and loves his sin. Really, according to the scripture, we are only able to love God because he first loved us. Look at what Ephesians 2, 4 says. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You have been made alive in order to truly love God. Again, I would say you must be regenerated before you are able to love God. Church, hear me. All too often today, we hear about people wanting to see the move of the Holy Spirit. It is my belief that the work of the Spirit in regeneration and bringing a fallen, sinful man to salvation followed by faith and repentance, is a supernatural miracle that only God can accomplish. At the beginning of this message, I challenge you to set aside your presuppositions and your traditions 
to reveal how Christ saved you. You may not agree with me, and that's okay. I'd love to talk to you about it. Hopefully, if nothing else, I've inspired you to dig further into the text of Scripture so that we can truly be a text-driven people. Thank you. Would everybody stand with me as we read the doxology? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.